You're listening to an episode of the Women in Media Conference. This is our political journalism panel talking with Moya, Nicola and Harriet about their careers in the media focusing on political journalism. We hope you enjoy. Um, Hi everyone, welcome to the Women in Media Conference. We're now starting our second week, which is really exciting. It's been a really good first week of events with a range of speakers and tonight is our political journalism panel which will be run by me and Rebecca who's also on the committee. Um, I'd like to start off by just saying could all of the speakers introduce them yourselves if you can and who you are and what your career is currently. Um, Harriet if you'd like to start. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm uh, Harriet Lyne, I'm the Deputy Political Editor of the Press Association, or technically PA Media, um, which is the UK's leading uh, national news agency, Um, and I cover British politics based in the Houses of Parliament, so everything from sometimes boring lobby briefings, uh, which is the Westminster kind of bubble, to foreign trips with the Prime Minister. Nicola, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. My name is Nicola Slauson. I'm a freelance journalist. I write mainly for The Guardian, uh, Evening Standard, Positive News, um, among others. Um, I mainly write news and social affairs, so I feel slightly like an imposter here, but I'm going to be talking about it with that hat on. Um, uh, You don't just have to go to the lobby uh, to report on political things. Um, and yeah, that's all I have to say, really. <laughs> Shall I go next? Um, yeah. <laughs> hi, everyone. My name's Moya Lothian-McLean. I am the politics editor of Galdem, which is a print and digital magazine for people of colour from marginalised genders. Um, and yeah, we basically cover just a huge range of political stuff, which I'll get into later. Right. Um, that you can enable closed captioning at the bottom, by the way, if you need it through the call. And if you've got any questions as we're going through, please feel free to put them in the chat. And I think Rebecca's got the next question. Yeah, we'd also like to know what your respective career trajectories were like and how you got to your current jobs. Sorry, you just jumping if you want to get <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> Um, so I graduated from the University of Durham, um, where I uh, edited the student paper, and then I was lucky enough to join the PA's NCTJ scheme, um, which is like a 17 week course in journalism um, in London. And then I got onto the PA's uh, graduate trainee scheme and started as a graduate sort of trainee news reporter doing all different desks. Um, and then I became a general news reporter. And then I moved into the lobby covering the gallery first, which is like reporting from the House of Commons, like sitting in the House of Commons on a daily basis. And then I moved into the lobby side, um, which is more kind of broader politics and more policy as opposed to the stuff that happens in the chamber. Um, And alongside that, I also freelanced at the Times a few years ago, um, basically to make ends meet. (laughs) Um, Where do you want to go next? We change, we're changing the order up, are we? Yeah. Um, so, so I started writing when I was at university as a freelance journalist. I was lucky from the get-go. I 
got paid for my articles, which is unusual, but I was writing for Vice. So I didn't do a degree in journalism. I did a degree in history um, and I wrote music journalism for Vice on the side. And from there, I was again, very lucky and went straight into a job when I graduated uh, from university and I became the editorial assistant at Stylist, which is a women's lifestyle magazine. So quite a big jump between uh, disciplines there. And I did that for three years and it was amazing. And I learned loads and I started writing on the digital side as well as the print side, um, which gave me a bit more freedom to try and like pursue my own independent reporting. And then from Stylist, I left to go to the BBC again, very different <laughs> for the next three months. So I worked on BBC Three as a technically the term was broadcast journalist, but I was essentially just doing editorial. Um, and I worked across more of, I would say, a typical political beat there. So I was reporting on stories that affected a youth audience, but they could be anything from knife crime to slum landlords um, to more viral stuff so there's a bit of a mix and from there when I finished after three months uh then which was a short it was a fixed term contract and they were rejigging the department but also I wanted to go freelance so then I went freelance and I basically did whatever sort of came to me but it was more it was more political stuff and I started working again on the side as sort of my three day a week rent job as a digital news reporter for the Indy 100 which if you don't know what that is, it's the vertical sort of for the independent and it's more like viral news stuff, but it's still, I think, think stuff like, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's done this and it's bad. So it's still political, but it's much more like the viral tone. Um, so I did that, which gave me a sort of great, quick baptism of fire and quick turnaround news, political news. And at the same time, I also then started doing cover for Galdem when their politics editor was away. Um, so I was, I just sort of fell into more political stuff and kept freelancing, kept doing more and more things in the political bent. And eventually Galdem came calling because their politics editor had left and they wanted me to apply for the job. And I did, and now I'm here. That's amazing, thanks. Nicola, do you wanna go? Yeah, sure. I'll try and keep it brief. Um, I've had a really weird uh, route into journalism because I actually, um, a career changer. So, um, well, I actually was the editor of my student paper at De Montfort University uh, in Leicester, long, long time ago, because I'm quite old. Um, and uh, then I went into the arts and um, I was a marketing officer, a marketing manager of an arts centre and then a marketing officer of a big theatre in Shrewsbury. Um, and then I decided to go and um, that I wanted to see the world. Uh, so I was an English teacher abroad, went to South Korea, Spain, various other places for three years. Um, but it was while I was in Spain teaching the same thing over and over again and um, being bored out of my brain because everyone's doing exactly the same exam in, <laughs> in Spain um, that I was like, I really want to make this journalism thing happen. So um, I've, I've told this story before, so I have no shame anymore. I, I actually Googled how to get a job at The Guardian as a news reporter and uh, came across the Scott Trust bursary. Uh, I'm from a working class background and I was the first in my family to go to uni. So I had no contacts. And this is part of the reason I didn't try and get into journalism straight out of my undergrad because I just didn't have the confidence. I didn't know what I was doing. It seemed like this big, scary thing. Um, anyway, so for the Guardian Scott Trust bursary, you had to have three months experience. Um, and so I moved back to the UK, moved to London 
uh, did an unpaid internship for six months and lived and worked in a boarding school. So I looked after teenagers at nights and weekends. And then in the day I would be like an editorial assistant um, for positive news. They do pay their interns now, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so don't worry. Uh, I have sort of, uh, I did sort of put my foot down. I was like, this is ridiculous. Anyway, um, I then got the Scott Trust bursary. So basically, I yeah uh, I set my mind to it and I and I got it which I don't know I can't believe I did but anyway I did it best day of my life changed my life um because I'd got accepted onto the MA at City and I didn't have any money to do it and I I thought well if I don't get the bursary at least no one will be able to take away the fact that I got accepted onto this course even though I won't be able to do it um so obviously it's great that I could do it um and then I basically you get like a internship kind of thing at the Guardian um, as part of it. And um, I think it helped that I was a bit older actually, because I was just like, right, this is it. This is the one chance. So um, my first week was on the society desk. Um, I asked the editor if she wanted to grab lunch with me. She asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I want to work here. I want to write for you. <laughs> Quite bullshit. And she just helped me so much. And basically loads of people took me under their wing. Someone let me live in their house for free for a month because I, I was sofa surfing, I had nowhere to live. Um, and then I just worked at The Guardian for three and a half years. It was basically a casual, but I worked there practically all the time. I was mainly doing social affairs, education, loads of stuff on mental health, homelessness, poverty, child poverty, um, all those kind of things. And then I went to HuffPost, had a staff job there um and then I realized that actually I prefer being freelance <laughs> so I went freelance about uh 18 months ago um it's mainly because I love to write the longer form news features um and a lot of what you do on a digital uh news desk is actually rewriting PA copy <laughs> um and I like to go out and interview people and see people and do like proper reporting so as a freelancer, I, apart from the pandemic, I can do more of that. And then I'm still at The Guardian doing shifts on the news desk as well, mostly doing the coronavirus live blog, which I've been doing for the last year. That's me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and because you obviously have very different jobs under the umbrella of political journalism, what do each of your typical days look like? Harriet, if you want to start first. So that yeah, I suppose there's never at PA. There's never really a typical day because a you write you work shifts. So sometimes you start work at six a.m. Sometimes you start work at three p.m. Um, and so that totally changes the kind of news agenda depending on what point you're kind of dialing into it. Um, but if you were to take a slightly more typical day, even though again in political news in the last three years, I think everyone knows that you should never expect anything to happen as planned. Um, but it would always start with the Today programme, I think is kind of like base point one in political reporting in like the mainstream media. You always listen to that. And then my day would be kind of perhaps on a on the most normal kind of day pre-pandemic. You might be going to a press conference in the morning because there'll be a speech by a cabinet minister at, say, a think tank or they're um, launching a policy or something then you might um, go from that to an event with a minister. So say this is a kind of busy day, might go and visit a hosp hospital or a school with prime minister or the labor leader. Um, and you're kind of listening out the whole time you're there for them to trip up or for them to say something that's newsworthy. 
Um, and then they normally do an interview at the end. And PA, unfortunately, doesn't often get to ask the questions, but we're always there to kind of listen to the answers and then write that up. Um, and then in the afternoon, you might have a coffee with an MP or something, um, or you'll be kind of watching or writing reports up, um, turning them into news, whatever kind of is happening that day. But it, yeah, it's never really a typical day, but those are kind of the elements that probably are in it often. <laughs> I can go next. Um, so a typical day at Gaudem. Uh, for me, it is get up, uh, put on the Google News app, which plays me about six different news bulletins in the row. Uh, so I have BBC News, uh, CNN, news from Wales, always go BBC News Net Wales. Um, I like to listen to the Financial Times news briefing in the morning as well, because I like the economic state of the world is something that people don't like I think most people don't realize that it is what drives most of what's going on so it's really nice to dip into that even if I have almost zero knowledge of actual economics it's it's just really interesting to see where that starts and then see it come through to the news a couple of weeks later like the mainstream news so I'll listen to my news briefings then I will check twitter and I will get lost in twitter for about 10 20 minutes while I and then I'll remember I have to make breakfast and then we have a morning news meeting so we'll send off our at 9 30 a.m we send off like the top lines we have to do today so that's uh you know things we've got planned like features we've got coming up the things that we know we have to do today then at 10 30 we have this morning news meeting where we'll talk about the headlines or things we've seen that we think we should cover um we'll discuss them as a team sort of like what what ang what, the, what would the galdam angle be i think we're we're lucky in that we are both um and i'll talk about this a little bit later we're not we're not seen as like a mainstream news outlet. So we allowed a little bit more time and freedom to sort of decide on what our angle is going to be or whether we should cover something. And we don't have to cover everything reactively because that's just not, people know that's not possible. It's also not our lane. So I'll do that. I'll bring any stories to the table from around the world in particular that, um, cause we have sort of like a global output that we have to do um, that I think we really need to cover. And then we'll talk about that. Then I will, go away for the next couple of hours until lunch it'll be just sort of working on either features or commissioning people or getting in touch with community groups that we want to talk to or sort of build a relationship with then I will take lunch um which is well I'm meant to take lunch usually it's very much sort of like run to the kitchen eat an omelette come back to my desk stare at the screen again uh check twitter obviously always twitter um and then in the afternoon that's more like we're publishing more we're more likely to be publishing stuff then tying up loose ends scheduling things um checking in on copy so it, it as as harriet's already put out like no day even even with galden which is more i think stable than perhaps pa then it's like there's no typical day but there's always sort of like the regular rhythms that you recognize uh the end of the day we do a sort of like summing up a handover of what we've done um and i will just be again monitoring constantly what's going on in the news whether we need to cover something, do we have to get copy in for tomorrow for something that's happened? Is there something that we should be across that is our lane? Um, but yeah, most of it's more long form, which I will talk about later, but that's a typical day. So it's even more all over the place when you're freelance. Um, so any given day I could be working on a feature or I could be uh, working on pitches. Um, so let's just take a day when I've got an article due, like, a big article I'm working on. I, um, I've just completed a big project um, on air pollution for the Evening Standard. So that was quite heavily researched. So I had to, um, I would be having meetings um, with like academics to do with air pollution, speaking to um, Transport for London, 
um, speaking to the mayor of London's office, although they never seem to get back to me, so they hate me. Um, <laughs> and uh, also finding case studies to highlight the issues um, and then doing big interviews, basically. Uh, at the moment, it's obviously been all online. Um, but that's actually been quite good because I've been using Otter for interviews, which I'm loving. Because now I just put my phone on speakerphone and uh, my computer records it and it's just brilliant. Um, but when I'm at The Guardian, um, if I'm doing a late shift, it's 5 till 1am. So I'll start usually at the moment, there's obviously like a briefing, like press conference. If I've been given the live blog already, then I'll have to just go straight away and basically report stroke write up what they're saying um which you know you have to be fast um and also you know some of them speak a lot of waffle but you you've got to be quick because some people are actually watching it and they're reading the live blog which is weird but anyway people really like the live blog uh, <laughs> and then after that you might um have to report on reactions you've got to keep an eye on twitter um usually i've got like bbc news or sky news on in the background as well um, and then usually the evening live blog is a lot about global stuff. So you've got to keep an eye on all of the wires um, and also keep an eye on your email because all of the correspondents from all over are sending you stuff that you've got to edit and put up. Um, at the moment, it's not that stressful because um, the coronavirus live blog has essentially been running for about a year now so it's just ticking over but sometimes when you've got a really big story a terrorist attack for example it is really stressful um, and polit politics wise you've got to keep an eye on people's reactions and then the reactions to that and then look at analysis try and bring some of that into the blog because people want to see what people are saying and then agree or disagree with them and uh, uh, yeah thank god for PA because uh, I wouldn't be able to do my job um, and then when I was at uh, HuffPost I obviously I would listen to the Today Show I also would make sure I checked like BBC Wales as well <laughs> I don't know why and, uh, and some of the other regions but also sometimes when I was looking for stories I'd be watching the hours of like committee hearings select committees um, particularly because I was interested in, um, say, uh, the universal credit, um, people, um, people having to do, uh, become sex workers because they weren't getting enough universal credit. So, for example, so I was watching a lot of committee hearings about that subject. And sometimes you can get a news story out of that, quite a quick one. But quite often I'd be looking because I want to see who's speaking to make note of it. And also like just the general topics, maybe there's an angle that hasn't been covered or um, I could do something a bit more in depth. So this is actually a note to self because I should do that again um, when I look at a topic. <laughs> it's actually a really good way to get a broad overview, but you do have to sit through a lot of people with some of them aren't so interesting, so. <laughs> Um, Harriet, this is a specific question for you. You covered the 2019 general election campaign from the campaign bus and have been based in the House of Parliament. What's it like covering huge political events from the front line? It's enormous fun. I think it's probably the like most important thing. You're hugely privileged, both working in Parliament, but also at PA because you are so often with politicians, like when they're out and about. You see a very different side to them I think um, and it is a real privilege to get that close to them and kind of in like a slightly nerdy way to just see the functioning of politics as to like who passes a piece of paper to whom like 
what the kind of process is when you have an ops person thinking oh god don't give them a cup of coffee because we're meant to be anti-disposable coffee cups like quick someone will find a reusable one or those sorts of things like really light moments where you realize just how much thought goes into absolutely everything in politics that you know someone's tie is wonky or, or their shirt's not ironed or I mean especially with the current prime minister often is a bit scrappy and he has got someone thinking oh god please just like tuck your shirt in you're about to give a press conference or something um and you get to see those aspects I think really up close um and also you see how politicians think and how they behave um and I've covered three prime ministers so from David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson um and you get a real kind of insight I think into their character even if you don't get the chance to interview loads um I am fortunate and I have spoken to all of them um but you do get to kind of observe that broader scale it can also kind of being at the front line and being at PA comes with an enormous responsibility because your job is to report exactly what they've said as quickly as possible completely accurately and completely fairly because we have no political swing um, and so you can easily get into kind of hot bother with that if you, I don't know, you're covering a, I remember one of my colleagues went to a flood um, with Boris Johnson last year and number 10 were not very happy that we reported the fact that he got booed because they thought that was taking the whole visit out of context, um, even though it ostensibly did happen. You have to think about all of those sorts of things about balancing it and then if, you, if they've said something that's very newsworthy, you have to, we call it a snap, but it's like sending a breaking news alert and our aim is always to make sure we've got that out before the BBC have, because the BBC should be using it from us. Um, and that sort of thing. So it comes, yeah, with huge privilege and it's great, great fun to get to see politicians really up close. And in Westminster is just a pretty cool place to work, even though it is slightly falling down. There's often sewage leaks and um, there's mice in our office and it's not that glamorous, but um, you do... Uh, it does come with that stress and that responsibility as well because you know you are perhaps some, or often the only journalist in the room and you've really got to get it right and get it first. Really interesting, thank you. Um, Moya, the next question's for you. As the political editor at Galdem, which is focused on the experience of women and non-binary people of colour, how does that impact the way you report on and commission reporting on politics, such as the type of issues you focus on more and like more long-form opinion-based pieces? Uh, I mean, in, in a myriad of ways. So for starters, I would say it, it makes us think about what we consider politics to be in the first place. So obviously, Harriet's job is very like Westminster lobby focused. It's about getting the news of what the politicians themselves are doing out there. And, you know, it's, it's what we think of like mainstream wise as politics. When people say politics, they think of Boris Johnson. They think of like Keir Starmer. Um, we do dabble in that, but we have to we try and think about politics in a way that our audience would relate to because they 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 can find that quite what's the word almost almost inaccessible because i think politics in this country is often made a bit inaccessible by maybe the politicians themselves i won't suggest why they might they might find that useful but uh so we have to think of it in like how do these everyday decisions made in westminster trickle down and affect the way people live their lives and what does that look like on the ground so we for example a story we recently did was like things that fall under politics is just basically about how people are living their lives and particularly how our audience are living their lives and how we can amplify their voices in a way that's maybe not seen in other media so a story we did recently which i think really exemplifies this is um it was about we called it 
um, how West Midlands media scheme that's, uh, I think, amplifying the voices of aunties in journalism. And aunties, for those who like might not be aware, is, is almost like a slang term for older women in POC communities, particularly black communities. And it was about a project that's going on in the West Midlands, which is training up migrant mature women as community journalists. So that that kind of thing where we really focus on like local news, community news, and try and pull that out and think, how can, you know, what are these like bright spots and stories that literally raise up the voices of a community that might not be heard often and it looked at how you know first of all migrant women that's an underserved community by the mainstream media but this story was literally looking at how these migrant women are telling their stories in their own words and how they're becoming part of the media so it's quite meta in a way um but it, it's, it's that kind of thing that falls under our politics so you know i might write a piece on keir starmer analyzing keir starmer's sort of leadership but at the same time the pieces are commissioned from my writers we just put one out today which I love which was um, by a writer in Namibia and they were writing about uh, the strike by their shop it's called it's a big multinational retailer and it's the biggest retailer in Africa it's called ShopRite and there's a strike being on by the workforce which is primarily women so it's basically Namibian women taking on Africa the continent's biggest retailer and at the moment they're winning so it's those kind of stories where we can pull out you know we have we have this really rich amazing community because we're working with people of color from marginalized genders who have all these amazing stories which you know in in uk media it is at the moment 94 percent white and i think it's there's a massive representation as well of people who perhaps come from you know more economically uh financially better off backgrounds like there's more people from private school and stuff um i'm middle class like i'm from state school but I'm still like from the more privileged background than some others. So, and you know, um, it's, it's, we have this remit where we can like, our community really trusts us. They want to share their stories with us. So a lot of what we do in the politics section is people telling us about things. And I'm like, yeah, I want you to write that. So although I have to go out and find stories myself, that's important. Um, a lot of what I do is listening and then going like, okay, this is a really beautiful story. And it does fit in the politics section because it's just about the way the community lives their lives. Um, so the way we commission is I try very hard to think, how can I make sure this voice is someone who maybe not would, would not usually have access to a platform to share their story and might not, you know, have gone through university and had a, done a degree in journalism and hopefully is outside of London. Um, and in that sense, like I'm trying to build a more regional diverse coverage because I'm, I'm from the middle of uh, the countryside, I'm from Herefordshire, and there was very few brown people there. So you didn't hear about, you didn't hear from them very much. Um, so it's, it's like, I try and think very hard about like the lineup of writers we've got as well. Like how can I always broaden that out? How can I reach out to more people? Um, one of the things we do as well is we, we talk to community groups because often those community groups will have links with local people who want to write. And we work with a lot of young aspiring writers, but also willing to work with, you know, more mature writers as well who might not have that first step into journalism. I often see Galdem as the politics section in particular as sort of, you know, there's lots of people out there with voices who they don't have the confidence to perhaps, or perhaps even the bylines to pitch someone like The Guardian or these mainstream broadsheets, but someone like Galdem, we can really help them shape their writing and get them, give them that confidence and give them those initial like skills of working with an editor, finding stories, and then they can go and pitch to meet these mainstream. So it's almost like I try, what I try and do with the politics coverage is someone who comes to me doesn't have to be like a trained reporter. They just have to be someone who has like a passion and then I'll try and work with them. And, you know, some people are really good. Some people aren't as experienced yet. Um, but 
you get some real stars out of them. People who've written for Galdem have now gone on to do amazing things. So especially the politics section. And I think often politics is a really daunting space for young writers, especially young women. Um, it's, as I said before, it seems a bit inaccessible. You seem, people think you have to have like a degree in politics or you have to know every in and out of every like committee meeting or, you know, how every bill passes through parliament. And that holds a lot of people back. I think from trying to enter the space, but the approach we have is very much sort of like person-led, community-led. How is this affecting your daily life? Like, what is going on in your local community? That's politics. Write about it. So that's how I, that's how I think about it, and that's how I like approach it and try and commission stuff. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, this question's for Nicola. Um, as a freelance writer, do you find yourself having to write more about news or stories that are relevant at the time? or issues that you're passionate about? Where do you find a balance there? Question. Um, it's a, it's definitely a mixture. Um, obviously with things like coronavirus, um, most things that you pitched kind of do have to have uh, <laughs> something to do with the pandemic or like in the, in the article, uh, in the pitch, sorry. Um, but having said that, there's loads of things that I've kind of wanted to write or wanted to work on. And I've just kind of shoehorned what's going on like in um, sometimes. Um, so as I'm quite an established, I guess, freelance journalist, I've been doing it now for about seven years or something like that. Um, although I've only been freelance this time for a year and a half. Um, but quite often when you get when you, when you start out, you have to pitch all the time. And so you are just pitching what you're interested in, even if you're kind of, what I usually do is I have like a spreadsheet um, and I'm basically waiting for something to come up in the news. I've already got the idea. And then I'm just like, quick, here's the news hook um, to, to like the editor. Um, but when I was first starting out, I was just pitching like left, right and center. But after a while, they the editors get to know what you're interested in. I developed some really good relationships with like the society and the education editors so they would often come to me um so yeah the more you become a freelance journalist and the more experience you have the more editors will come to you and ask you to do stuff which is a bit of a double-edged sword because it sounds amazing especially if you're fed up with pitching and you're getting rejected all the time it sounds amazing to just have an editor drop a story in your lap but actually that does tend to mean that you end up writing things that aren't exactly what you want to do. And it, it kind of takes you down a path. So I was, oh, I was, oh, got a oh. Echo. Oh. <laughs> so I was doing, um, I, I started in social affairs, but then I was kind of ended up doing quite technical stuff with loads of data and it just wasn't my bag. And it was because the editors were coming to me. So you do have to sort of take control and be like, so I just had to start saying no, which is a really scary thing to do as a freelance journalist. But um, yeah, I just had to start saying no so that those editors knew that I didn't want to do that kind of thing. Um, and then some things will happen, like the Evening Standard editor, I'd worked with her both at HuffPost and The Guardian. I've essentially followed her around. She's now at PA, actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, she just asked me to go for coffee and she said she had something she wanted me to work on. And it was this year long air pollution project. I've never, I may have written a few news stories like on a news shift about air pollution. Like if something, I don't know, press release came out or something happened that day. Um, but I'd never done any in depth, anything on air pollution. And actually one of the reasons she chose me or the main reason was because I didn't know anything. And she wanted to make the project 
um, really accessible so that people reading it who were kind of put off by big scary headlines about air pollution would actually want to read it because it was me basically explaining it um, in a way that lots of people could understand rather than like an expert science correspondent who knows so much but maybe can't um, like relate it back to the audience. Um, so that one again landed on my lap. I was really nervous, I had to do loads of research and make Twitter lists and all sorts of stuff to try and find out who I was supposed to be speaking to. Um, so yeah, that came out of nowhere, but then the rest of the time it's like, I've got stuff I really want to work on or write about. Um, and sometimes things don't work out. Uh, I don't know, it was another universal story, um, universal credit story. I was sent to Liverpool. I was meant to do this whole other story, but when I got there, I realized that that was impossible because it was too early to know the effects of universal credit because it had just come in. Um, so my editor said, basically, you can't come back to London until you get a story. <laughs> so I had to, uh, that was so scary. Um, <laughs> so I had to find a story. It was about universal credit, but basically what I did do was um, about the city bracing itself for the impacts of, of universal credit. And that was just before the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. And it was like highlighted as like a story which really showed what the hell was going on. And I, it was about politics. I interviewed like the mayor of Liverpool uh, or some councillors and stuff. But I also, I'm sort of um, really interested in humans and how it was affecting people. So I visited like a women's refuge um, a drop-in clinic for like um, people with some like legal kind of issues. Um, I spoke to like the most amazing lettings agent. I mean, this person was like fighting the corner of her tenants to like not get them evicted. Like I couldn't believe it. Like every other lettings agent I've ever spoken to has been an asshole. So I was like, what is going on here? But anyway, um, and yeah, it was amazing. I was just dashing around Liverpool um, and I had this taxi driver that I'd done a Guardian story with in Liverpool and he basically just drove me around because I had his number <laughs> for if I came back. So anyway, so sometimes you can end up doing stuff that maybe wasn't your bag and then it, you end up making it your bag. So, um, so yeah, that was really good. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of both. And as you get more established, you can write more what you want to write is the short answer to that long, long winded one. Sorry. <laughs> And building on from that, Moya, how was your experience in freelancing and how has that differed from uh, your current position as political editor at Galdem? Um, I think very similar to Nicola in that it's a lot more chop and change. Uh, I really liked freelancing. I will say for the freelancing side of it, I always advise people to have a at least three day a week regular money maker job or you know two day a week if that's enough for you. I do think that if you're freelancing in this day and age, you probably need some form of stable income. That doesn't even have to be related to journalism. It's just to make sure you can pay your rent because depending, I mean, depending on your level, if you're at a certain like level of uh, notoriety or you know, your name's known enough, you know, like Catelyn Moran doesn't need to do a three day a week job. She's, <laughs> she gets she gets paid enough for like two articles. Uh, but if you are starting out and there's no staff jobs and you need to freelance, I would very much advise getting a regular job. Mine was the Indie 100. You know, I did that three days a week. It kept my rent paid. I then had the freedom to go away and do the like sort of like longer features and um, have, I guess, more 
I guess looking to the things I really wanted to while you know making sure that there was still a roof over my head and I wasn't uh cut for cash because the rates paid in the industry in the UK at the least are you know they vary a lot and often if you're starting out the bylines you get will probably be with new media companies initially until the it's just the way the way it works is like the broadsheets don't take as much notice of your trust you until you've got some under your belt so uh you'll probably be paid anything from between 150 to 300 for an article and the time that you put into that article as a freelancer is not you're not getting paid every day for that like you you can spend you know three days to a week doing a piece you're only going to get paid on completion of that piece so um i would yeah very much get that that's sort of like steady job so i i had my steady job and then two days a week i did the way like i found stories i basically didn't have to pitch that much i was quite lucky um in that people started coming to me perhaps because i'd been doing it for so long like people see people now people now seem to think that I started overnight I have I've been doing this since I was like 2014 so people sort of like know I have been here for a while even though but people think that like they're like oh she's really young she's just come here and it's like no I promise you there was a lot there's been a lot of slogging before I even got near a sniff a sniff of a regular income um so yeah I I people started coming to me by that point but I also was doing more stuff behind the scenes so I was working on radio shows and doing production um which as a freelancer, I would also, I would say, if you have the opportunity as a freelancer, dip your toes into anything you can, because it will just make your journalism better to know, A, how media in all forms works, how news is disseminated, how people find stories, so you can go and look where they're not looking, um, because that's where the, the undiscovered stuff is. Um, and yeah, so doing radio is really good. It's also, um, you get to meet a lot more people, you get a lot more contacts, um, which you can then store and be like, you know, years later, you'll be like, oh, I, I remember getting that person on to talk about, I don't know, um, harassment against women. They would be a really great interviewee for this piece that I'm doing now, you know. And so it's always a case of making, making keeping people in mind and storing the people you meet. Um, and I, I say as a freelancer also, again, like Nicola was saying, dipping your toes into things sometimes that you are interested in but might not even know, like, loads about. I'm not saying, like, write on things that you have no authority or... Um, and just go, kind of be like oh the subject's okay I'm just going to dive into it but stuff that you're like I've been interested in this I'm going to research this there's a story in this that I don't think people have noticed that's useful uh but as a as a politics that I say I do a lot less writing like I don't I I write a lot less simply because I don't have the time and a lot of the time I'm doing the editing and commissioning and I quite like that <laughs> like I enjoy writing but it's also very nice to not think get up every day and think right I have to I have to somehow open this article and close this article by the end of the day and and have that sort of that pressure pressure. yeah time pressure so uh yeah that's that's the sort of difference but um freelancing wise there's also for anyone who needs tips there's so much so many freelancing tips out there um content wise and I would advise just literally googling freelance or putting it into twitter because the freelance industrial complex is very strong and you will definitely be able to find some advice on doing that there um yeah just sorry just to add to that as well um I was actually when I first started out I was doing shifts at the guardian so that was what paid my rent and even before that I didn't have um a regular journalism gig but I was still working in like a co-working space as like a host which was actually great because I was just speaking to people all day when you speak to people all day people tell you things you get story ideas um and there's no shame in like doing a job that's totally not to do with journalism I think there's a lot of pressure these days like you suddenly have to have a full-time journalism job and it's like not 
true it's actually really good to go somewhere and do something completely different um and I was a host so I was like you know being all welcoming and stuff it was quite fun um and now is actually the first time where I don't have a part-time gig and I'm now like oh I'm panicking and when you're panicking you, you're not going to be very good at coming up with ideas so it's good to have something that does pay your rent um and then you can yeah research all the ideas and the rest of the rest of the week um so yeah uh, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> I think that um, people beat themselves up as well that they're not getting loads of commissions. Um, and it is, it, at the first, it is just a slog. It is just really hard work. But if you keep going, you will start getting people coming to you with ideas um, that you don't have to pitch, which is amazing. <laughs> Can I add, just in after Nicola there, even though I was very lucky in the sense I got a full-time paid job kind of six months after I graduated from my degree, um, I also had to work alongside in non-journalism things um, because salaries in like first-time jobs in journalism are normally not very good and I was kind of well I was completely financially independent didn't have any help from anywhere else or any savings really to go off of and um, so I was tutoring waitressing um, and then I also picked up times shifts and the times shifts were really helpful because they were at least relevant um, but I think having that drive, like don't be put off if you're feeling broken, stressed and having to do lots of other work, it definitely made me really hungry to like get promoted and get into a job where I could be like much more financially stable. And I look at some of my peers and I actually am quite thankful for that, that I did have to work several jobs at once in order to get to where I am. Thank you. Um, the question for all of you as political journalists is, whether you found it difficult at times to stay objective during, you know, particularly contentious stories like Brexit or US and UK elections, free school meals, how do you navigate that and try to stay unbiased in your writing? Harriet, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, I can see why it is a problem and it is something that I think you might inside feel quite sort of angry about a certain issue or want to write it in such a way or want to ask a question in like full of emotion about something like Brexit which is very divisive um, but I would really really advise people if they want to ever really work in quite unbiased journalism so be it somewhere like PA or say you know maybe one day work for the Guardian and the next work for the Telegraph and people do move around it is best to try and just kind of leave your opinions at the door I think um, and do the job that like you are there to do and often as in my job certainly my politics doesn't play any part in it but you can still use the, your experiences and the things you kind of think about to direct the way you're asking questions because if you're feeling a particular thing there's no harm in putting that to someone and kind of channeling it that way if that makes sense so as opposed to being political and I'm not saying that my questions are always based on my own beliefs in fact there never are but you can still kind of think about your experiences and think well why is this not being affected or being kind of addressed and we should be asking these kind of questions um I would actually say something like Brexit I found quite easy to leave those opinions at the door but coronavirus I found quite different because it was impacting all of our lives so much and of course it was frustrating when you were writing about u-turns of the government and you thought this this is all my life or like Christmas or something when the government says you can't go home and you think well I'm writing about this stuff but that's completely affecting my life too 
Um, and I, I did find that quite difficult, much more so than like a political beliefs thing. But then I'm also not an overtly political person, even though my job is politics, if that makes sense. But I think things that do impact you is quite hard. But my advice would be very much to try and kind of swallow it if you want to go down a more impartial type career. I think that, um, am I on mute? No, I think that that's why I, uh, that's why I haven't gone down an impartial route. I find it too difficult to be honest. Like, um, and at the Guardian, it's it's kind of easier because there is a political um, like swing, I guess. Um, you know, I've been in like com morning conferences at the Guardian and even though everyone might be arguing, they're all kind of, none of them are like fighting for the Tories, for example, but they might be fighting among them about which Labour leader they like or whether the Green Party should get more of a look in or, you know, stuff like that. Um, so that does make my life easier. <laughs> um, uh, and it hasn't really affected, I guess, even though I do tweet, I'm, I'm more like, in my opinion, I evenly um, criticise all, all politicians because <laughs> uh, I think they're all, um, that's probably generalising, but they're all not great, are they? And, uh, and so I try and evenly criticise. So that's my approach. I sort of, instead of saying nothing, I say a lot, but I sort of try and keep it even. Um, and then I tend to write for the more liberal press. So uh, it's not a problem. <laughs> they don't mind but if I wanted to go and work for like, I don't know the BBC they might ask me to delete loads of my tweets or something like that so it could be a problem um I don't have this problem because Gaudo is unabashedly not objective in any way shape or form uh which is I think is good because I think people would be you know Harriet's job that's clearly a very like objective role you have to you write very neutral copy I've read the PA copy it's it's clearly very balanced and neutral like whereas if I was at Gaudum helming the coverage I helm and trying to pretend that I was objective people would have a fit they would be like this is not objective this is not balanced so we solve that problem by saying I'm you know Gaudum is a very left-leaning publication and therefore no one gets annoyed when I bash the Tories but um I, th I think I think it depends it's like one thing with Gaudum is rather than having to worry so much about, um, because obviously I'm not saying all people of color are, you know, naturally left-leaning or they are all like radicals. They're not, that that would be ridiculous to claim. It just, so we tend to take a more structural view. And I think uh, the, our audience people who do gravitate towards that anyway. So I think the thing with Gaudum more when it comes to political events is making sure that we are not just reflecting the views of the editors. Like we have to literally listen to the community and accurately represent how they're feeling. And sometimes, you know, I might disagree with a take or I might disagree with sort of an angle, but the, you know, it's not my voice necessarily that needs to be amplified in the article. So that's when I have to sort of swallow the, the my personal feelings on something and be like, okay, well, but this is how I think we should moderate. And in that case, we'll go back to like a writer and I, you know, I might ask some questions, but if they answer them properly and it's like, it's literally, it comes down to a case of personal opinion. My opinion is not going in there. It's not, it's not my piece. It's like, that's not my job as a political editor. Um, but I, we have less of an issue with sort of like left and right and balance in that sense, um, because uh, we, we're very much right. No left, not right. <laughs> Um, but we that was an amazing Freudian slip um, but we do also we do like to criticize the left as well like we're not just here, out here being like labor go labor if anyone who reads our coverage knows that we are very critical of labor too um, so that that's balance 
um just telling saying everyone is bad but yeah it's it's I think with the big events we kind of all agreed on what the Galdam angle was it tends to be more things that are happening outside of the UK I think that is more difficult and the more nuanced stuff on how to cover you know when we talk about racism it's like how do we cover that in a way that is really reflective of the different experiences of the different demographics that we talk to because there is so much sort of um disagreement over how certain types of racism in certain communities um, occurs so that's a subject you have to handle really sensitively without falling too far into sort of like identity reductionism where everybody has a completely different experience and you must like that experience must be represented down to a t because that again i think is very separatist so there's a lot more thorny issues in that that area i think than having to like talk about brexit because we were just like brexit's not good we don't like this but maybe maybe we'll reconsider in the face of the sort of vaccine rollout maybe we're now going to come big big brexiteers <laughs> thank you we wanted to ask next, what have been your biggest achievements in your careers so far to all of you? Does anyone have something that comes to mind and wants to go first? <laughs> or shall I pick? <laughs> okay, Harriet, you've got to go. <laughs> I've been first all the time, girls. <laughs> um, biggest achievements. Um, gosh, I think for me, probably... Um, some of the big kind of moments in my career so things like I've done as well, it was a stand-up but effectively a sit-down interview with Prime Minister Boris Johnson during the 2019 election um, and that was quite a pinnacle because I thought god I was like how old was I 27 and I thought shit I'm like 27 interviewing Prime Minister this is quite a big moment and I never imagined when I looked back on starting out in journalism that I would be at that position to be and I always find it I don't know if um Nicola and Moira you agree but like when you're interviewing someone you do you almost feel like a, you're equal at that point not that they're you know obviously he's the prime minister and I'm still a young journalist but you're you're grilling them at a level and they're completely kind of putty in your hand if you ask them something really awkward they're going to fall down and that's um quite a fun power um and quite scary but yeah probably I would say a moment like that um and yeah, I think so. And then also you can like look about stories and some big excuses I've done, um, things like the chancellor um, was threatening to quit. Um, and I kind of found that out. This was under Theresa May. Philip Hammond wanted to walk out because she was spending too much at the end of her premiership. Um, and that was like a big story that was all, like being talked about on the Today programme and in all the papers the next day and kind of dominated that day's lobby briefing. And that was quite a proud moment, I think for me, because um, well, I hadn't, I, to be honest, hadn't actually done that much work to getting that story. <laughs> and um, so it was kind of a, I'd woken up that morning and um, done a bit of work, found it out, wrote about it, asked some like, questions, and then it was suddenly a very big story and it was quite a shocking sort of moment, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would say those are probably my proudest achievements, but I'm always grateful to be in a job in journalism and I'm still immensely proud of that. I'm sure. Nicola and Moy probably have much better answers to that question. <laughs> I've never actually like entered an award, so I've never won an award. I'm like, what have I done? Um, I mean, I think I'm just going to talk about um, an article that I did that got um, that had quite a big impact, even though it wasn't. Um, maybe I should have been entered into an award, but I didn't. Um, but basically. Um, I don't know, it sticks out because it made an impact to actual people. 
Um, but basically I did a big story about, for The Guardian, about these, this um, mental health cafe, um, which was an evening thing for people who are in crisis. And there were um, professionals there. And basically it was um, to help reduce the rates of um, people who had suicidal thoughts going to A&E and, um, and to obviously help them um, through their crisis. Um, and I don't know why, but that article, because I've, I've written a lot of these kind of stories where I interview really vulnerable people and I'm highlighting like a sort of policy thing. Um, but this one in particular, I, I, think it, I think I did quite a good job of, of the interviews. Um, I used to say like my specialism is interviewing vulnerable people, um, which sounds weird, but it's just like, I I'm good at that. Um, I used to be like, oh, I can't say I'm good at something, but I'm just going to own it. I'm really good at that. <laughs> um, so, um, so there were some really powerful lines. But what happened afterwards, it was so well shared and well read that actually several other um, local authorities um, copied the idea. I mean, I, I don't know the exact impact, but like it was tens of places, like way more than 10. I can't remember exactly how many. Um, but they implemented this kind of, it's quite a small, quite a grassroots kind of idea. It's actually two little small charities. They got the local authority on board. Um, and I was just really proud of that because, and it's still to this day, I sometimes get like messages about it. Like, oh, I'd love to be put in touch with the people who, who did it so that we can copy the idea here. Um, so yeah, it had a big impact, even though it was a little, quite a little thing. Um, so yeah, I'm sure I've done bigger things, but I can't think right now. <laughs> Um, for me, I actually have, I've thought of three, so that's good. Um, <laughs> just sitting here and doing a, this is my best bits reel. Um, so the first one was when I was a freelance reporter and I was working for the Indy 100. And as I said before, the Indy 100 was mostly just like viral news. Um, and it was really useful, but it, it wasn't like in-depth reporting. So I said, look, can I go and do some, this, this report and this was at the very very start of lockdown in 2020 and the furlough had just been announced and I'd seen some rumblings on Twitter about people who were left out of the furlough and I thought no one's covered this yet it was before anyone had actually done stories on it and so I, I was like for the indie look can I take my you know can I take some of the time that I would normally do for the spiral news and go and do this they won't pay me an extra it's basically free report um so my sister was really nice she was like yes yes you can go do this um so I went away and I found three people and one of the people I talked to, he he basically was just saying to me that he'd been like on the brink and he talked to me about how, you know, he he was stuck in hundreds of miles away from his home. He'd gone down to start his new job, but because his new job was registered after the cutoff day of furlough, he hadn't got any money and the restaurant he was working for had to, had to close its doors to the seeable and he was, you know, he was down, he had no money left. It was trying to ask family, but family didn't have any money. They stuck, he was, he was having really difficult thoughts. And I wrote about this and I wrote about the organization, like the, it was, it was, what was it? There's a hashtag of that song, it was Excluded UK. And I wrote about this and he, you know, a year, and I kept in contact with this and I watched this man as he sort of, he became like a leader for this organization. And it's become this big thing called Excluded UK, which is now mentioned in parliament. They're still campaigning and, uh, I won't mention his name, but you could actually, his, no, his name's in the article, it's fine. And he's really great. He's a wonderful guy. His name's Tim Smith. And he was on Good Morning Britain the other day. And he messaged me and he was like, I just want to say you were the first person who reached out and like talked to me and got my story out there. And 
you'll never know how much that meant. And I cried when I got that message because I was like, this was the first time I felt like I'd done on my own. I'd gone out there and I found a story that was really, really bloody important. And I'd followed my gut instinct and I'd done it. And it felt like it was, you know, even if no one read that, even if 15 people read that, Tim read that, and that was what was important and it was out there. So that was one of the moments that getting that message, that made me really proud, just seeing how much he's done and like knowing that on that, we really connected in that moment. It was like a journalist and, you know, interview subject, but also just as people. That's what like journalism to me is about, connecting with people and sharing their stories. So that was a really proud moment. Second one was when I did a big investigation recently as well on transphobia in domestic violence services, which is a subject that's not very much reported on because of the current political climate. And we managed, Sky News wanted to interview us about it. So I managed to talk on Sky News about this investigation when other mainstream broadcast channels I won't mention turned, like we didn't even reach out to Sky, but other broadcast channels turned us down because they said that it was not the right sort of thing because of certain editorial policies they have about um, trans individuals right now. Um, but Sky, so we talked about Sky, that was, I was really proud of that, like the work and the people who come forward and trusted us with their stories. Um, thank you to the person in the chat who's just said that. And then, so that was, yeah, that was like free pound. Then prior, like on a personal level, um, on my 26th birthday, I just wrote a piece in the New York Times and it was on the front page of the International New York Times. So that happened last week and that was, that's really fresh. So that's still my like third proudest thing. Anyway, that was, that was the Moya highlights reel. So I'll let someone else talk now. Amazing, thank you. Um, we've got another panel at seven, so we might have to wrap up soon. But if you could all say like where we can follow you on Twitter and find you more um, quickly, that would be great. Shall I go first? Um, I'm at Harry Line, but Harry with an I. Um, and I feel free to direct message me or whatever. I'm always happy to help with tips um, if I buy your views. Um, I'm at Nicola underscore Slauson on both Twitter and Instagram um, and I'm always happy to help other freelance journalists um, especially from like non-traditional backgrounds if you want to get in touch um, I'll help in any way I can. <laughs> um, I'm at M. Lothy McLean I just quickly want to say to the person in the chat who asked the question about important writing for only places whose outlet you agree with um, I think that is very much a personal decision if you feel like they conflict with your principles to the degree that you would not feel happy writing for them you'd feel nauseous writing for them don't do it but if you make you if you make the choice where you're like you know what I'd feel okay doing this then go ahead I think just afterwards don't don't try and like don't don't write it off as like oh but I had to just own the choice whatever you do is I think the best way and then you won't feel any shame about it but that's what I say and yeah so but anyone who also wants advice or wants to write for Gowden please dm me Amazing. Thank you all so much. It's been such an interesting panel. Um, yeah, I think that's the end. It's always the strange end to it. But thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much. much.